My guest today is Vatsan Raman. Vatsan is an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Vatsan, it's great to have you on today. Oh, thank you, Rishan. It's great to be here. Okay, let's get right into it. So you have a diverse set of interests, understanding protein allosteric and bacterial transcription to designing biosensors and bacteriophages. You also use a diverse set of tools to answer these questions, computational protein design, next-generation sequencing, and machine learning. If you had to sum it up, what's the central theme to your work and how do all these things intersect and even come together in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. I, the way I, I think about sort of protein biochemistry and protein biophysics is really um, how can we develop methods where we systematically introduce mutational perturbations to proteins in very high throughput and, and measuring function in very high throughput, right? And so that's really the theme of what we do in my lab. And so we, 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 we develop methods for, for uh, making large scale mutational scans of proteins. And these could be sort of systematic mutational scans, or these could be uh, Rosetta informed designs or, or, uh, or, or multiple sequence alignments from protein families. And so we use all this information to make changes. And then we devise uh, experimental assays where we can measure the function of hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of protein mutants all at the same time. And so if, if I were to sum up what we do in my lab in one sentence, the goal is to understand protein sequence function landscapes and to then use that information to figure out, you know, what is the molecular, what are the molecular rules of how proteins function? And then I guess the next step then is to then use that information to then design and engineer novel protein for novel applications in synthetic biology. So, so that would be the summary of what we do in my lab. Awesome. So I kind of wanted to now get into protein allosteric. So allosteric has been described as the second secret of life. Um, how would you describe allosteric? And also just more generally, how it's traditionally studied? Yeah, you know, the, the problem of protein allosteric or uh, the question of how allosteric works, I mean, that's a question that's, that's occupied um, you know, biophysicists and biochemists for, for almost 60 years now. Um, and and it's, it's taken sort of a few different turns. Um, you know, initially people were merely looking at structures and they were like, well, you know, here is, here is the off state of a protein and here is an on state of the protein. And there's clearly some change that's happening um, and which is the allosteric process. But maybe I'll take a step back and just sort of define what I mean by allosteric. And, and uh, so many, many proteins in the cell have this property called allosteric. And what that simply is, is if you, if you uh, have some perturbation to the protein, which is, and that could happen by binding to a small molecule, it could be binding to a protein partner, which happens say at one end of the protein, uh, that information is somehow transmitted to some distal end of the protein and that affects the function of the protein. And so really you have this switch-like behavior where you have some trigger that binds at one end and this is the allosteric molecule uh, or the allosteric effector. And then there is some activity that happens at some distal end. And, and so what, what, what's interested biophysicists and biochemists for a long time is, well, how is this information transmitted from one end of the protein to the other end? And, and you know, this could be 50, 60, 70 angstroms away, which is a very long distance in molecular scales. Um, and, and so, well, how is this information propagated? And we've traditionally looked at this, I'd say, maybe three different ways. Uh, one approach is when I say we, I mean the community in general. And I'll tell you how, how we're thinking about this a little differently. So the community in general has looked at this three different ways. So one is to, to look at sort of snapshots of structure, right? So here is the off state, here is the on state, and look at the shape change. 
and 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 something is happening between this off state and the on state. So that's sort of the, the crystallography based approach. And then there is a lot of biophysical techniques where they're looking for um, um, you know, so NMR based measurements where you can look for some change in the protein shape uh, when the trigger is applied. And, and then you can sort of infer what might be going on based on mobility or flexibility in, in within the protein. So that's sort of approach number two. And approach number three are sort of purely computational approaches where you, you can simulate the protein, see what parts are moving, and then, and then try to infer what the allostatic pathway might be. And, and really, if you, if, you, if you sort of sit back and ask, well, what is the problem with these approaches? A, you know, a snapshot of structure really doesn't tell you anything about how the amino acids work. So that's one. B, if you look at parts that are moving, parts that are moving don't necessarily mean that those are functionally important for allostatic. So that's number two. And, and, and the same problem applies to computation, right? Because you can say, you know, use molecular dynamics-based simulations or graph-based graph -based methods that look for interacting residues. But again, these simply serve to validate pre-existing data. It's not totally obvious to me that they have a lot of predictive power, right? And so, so that's, that's been the problem in the, in, in, in the field. And so what we've done is we said, well, you know, let's, let's do uh, uh, the, the, the clearest evidence of any amino acid or a residue in the protein, if, if that residue is involved in allosteria or not, is to functionally interrogate that residue. You ask that protein, you make a mutation to that residue and ask, are you involved in allosteria or not? If it is, then it'll shut the protein down or it'll lock the allostatic protein in one state or the other. And if it's not, it'll really have no impact on function. And so what we've done is we've looked at what are called as function-centric approaches where we systematically mutate every position in the allostatic protein to all 20 amino acids across the entire protein. And so these are thousands of mutations. And then we devise assays to ask which mutations lock the protein in the off state, which mutation lock the protein in the on state. And so, and from that, we can start sort of filtering out information and ask, you know, these are the residues that are critical for allosteric signal. So that's the way we do it. Right, awesome. So I kind of wanted to get into some more details about um, exactly what your lab has been doing in the um, space of protein allosteric. So you, you uh, published a paper in PNAS last year where you used this disrupt and restore strategy using the tetracycline repressor as a model system to study the plasticity of allosteric regulation. So before getting into the takeaways of the paper, could you describe just the basic experimental approach? I thought experimentally what you did was very clean and elegant and interesting. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the, the, the TET-R protein and you know, you know, many molecular biologists and biochemists would have used the TET-R protein as an inducible system for all kinds of uh, uh, gene expression experiments. And so it's, this is a classic protein and its, its function is really very simple. In its off state, it binds to DNA and sort of blocks off transcription because the RNA polymerase sort of bumps into this and cannot proceed any further. When it binds to its inducer, it, bump, it comes off of DNA and then transcription proceeds. And so the, the off state is bound to DNA, the on state is unbound to DNA. And so what this then means is for us, we can connect some fluorescent reporter and simply measure if the protein is in the off state or on state. And so that, that really allows us to then use cell sorting, which is a high throughput method to, to measure function. And so, so this is how the protein works. And what we did, again, was to simply mutate every amino acid in the protein to all 20 remaining 19 amino acids and ask, are there which residues in the protein, if mutated, lock the protein in the off state, whether you add the inducer or not? 
right? So it's a really simple experiment. Um, and then, and then when we did that, again, we, we would leave out the residues that are contacting the ligand. So that's sort of the obvious set to leave out. And then we said, well, what are the residues that are, that are important? And so we can map the residues in the protein. And so the first, I would say, uh, um, so, so that was sort of, that's the, that's the disruption of function strategy. We're sort of locking it down in one space. Then the restoration of function strategy was if we, when we identify a mutant that locks the protein in, in the off state, we said, now on this protein background, if I introduce mutational scanning on all the other amino acids, can I restore function, right? And so it was, uh, it was and, and we said, well, if, 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 if we can, that means that these two, if there are certain mutations that can restore function, that means the residue that, that, that inactivates the protein and the mutation that activates the protein, these are allosterically coupled to each other. And so that was really the simple hypothesis that we did. And um, yeah, so that was the work, experimental dis, uh, workflow. Nice, nice. So um, yeah, could we get into now some of the takeaways of the work and how exactly has your mental model of allosteric changed after doing these experiments? Yeah, I, so I'd say there are two major takeaways from that paper, which was really eye-opening to us. Um, first, uh, was the, the the idea that when you can break allosteric with many many mutations, and one would say well, that's not entirely surprising. But what was really neat was you could restore allosteric with distal mutations scattered all over the protein. What was counterintuitive to us about that finding was the, the, the traditional idea was you know you have the allosteric site where the inducer binds, and you have the active site where the reaction happens, and the amino acids that are sort of and there's the pathway that connects them, right? And so that's the critical part. So you, you mess with the pathway, then you mess with the protein. What we found was these allosterically coupled residues are really everywhere in the protein. And so it's it's not the simple mechanical model of like, you know, you 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 twist something here and we see an action happen there. It was just that there's just this really nice thermodynamic balancing that happens between the mutations. And so you don't even have to be anywhere close to the allosteric site or the active site, but you can still affect allosteric simply because you're, you're tilting the thermodynamic balance one way or the other. And so that to us was, was, a, was, a, was a counterintuitive finding. So that's number one. The second big takeaway for us was uh, we, we, we looked at these residues that are critical for allosteric signaling, and I'm gonna call them allosteric hotspots. And, and we expect, and we said, okay, let's pull up a multiple sequence alignment of all the TETR homologs. And then we would expect that these residues, which are the allosteric hotspots in TETR, uh, would be highly conserved because they're you know, important for function. Um, and it turns out that they're not conserved for function, um, and, and which again was a little counterintuitive to us. And, and then you ask, well, which residues are important for, or, or which residues are conserved? It turns out that the residues that are important for stability of the protein in TET are, are highly conserved, but the residues that are important for allosteric are not conserved. Um, and so, so, you know, one, you know, soundbite from that uh, uh, analysis is nature preserves fold over function, which means that it's hard to get the fold and so it preserves all those amino acids that are essential for the fold of the protein. But once it gets the fold, allosteric is, there are just many, many, there's a, there's a lot of degeneracy in allosteric. It can maintain allosteric with many, many sequence combinations. And so that was, that was the takeaway. So do you think this idea of um, 
Alistair not being highly conserved will extend to other protein families as well. Is that something you're investigating? Yeah, that's that's the, absolutely. So we're we're doing that with 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 other protein families, transcription factors, non-transcription factors, um, and and so and so to us, like the million dollar question is: Is this insight generalizable? Um, and you know, and as with biology, um, it's it, the answer is probably you know neither here nor there. In, in there may be some protein families where the allosteric uh, hotspots are not conserved, say such as TetR, but there may be other proteins where the allosteric and stability are so um, 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 blended in that you can take one out and and and. Uh, um, and treat it separately. And so in those cases, the allosteric hotspots might be conserved. But again, we haven't done those experiments, but that's what we're doing now. Right. So in terms of also rescuing the mutants, are you thinking of um, mutating multiple residues as opposed to only individual residues now that you know that residues that are not conserved may more likely to be allosteric hotspots? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, so the question really then becomes, can you rescue, you know, we if we, if we, if we, make a rest, restorative mutation, which is a single mutation, we get a certain amount of gain of function, which is 30, 40, 50% of the wild type function. But then the question is, if we make say double restorations or triple restorations, can we then fully restore to wild type like, like levels? And we haven't done that yet, but there is some early evidence that that might well be the case, right? In, in, in other words, to achieve the right level of thermodynamic balance that the wild type has, you'll have to make multiple restoration mutations. Um, cool. So now I wanted to get into uh, bacteriophages, another um, area you're working in. Um, so in theory, bacteriophages sounds very appealing for industrial and clinical applications. Um, in practice, though, um, it hasn't, I guess, caught up. Like, why is it so hard to engineer bacteriophages? Well, so I think there, there, are, there are a few reasons. Um, I wouldn't say engineering bacteriophages is hard per se. Um, I think the antibiotic resistance crisis, um, the, the interest in microbiomes um, where bacteriophages play a huge role, um, th these have sort of resulted in a renaissance in, in bacteriophage research. Um, so if you think back about you know, 20 years or 30 years back, you know, bacteriophage research was a really big deal. Um, we, we learned a lot about genetic regulation back in the day from bacteriophage uh, genomes. And it kind of fell out of favor. And, and, and the reason it's, it's making a comeback in some way is, is partly driven by uh, uh, multidrug resistant bacteria. And like I said, you know, the role in microbiomes in, in you know, biogeochemical cycles and, and, and these other major processes where bacteriophages have a huge role to play. And, and so again, I wouldn't say engineering bacteriophages is hard. It's, it's now we just have the motivation to do that. I see. So um, in your recent eLife paper, you developed a technique based on um, deep mutational scanning to more efficiently engineer uh, bacteriophages. So what's kind of the basic idea behind this technique and um, why is it superior to traditional protein engineering methods? So I'll contrast it two ways. Uh, one is I want to sort of contrast this method with respect to traditional phage assays. And so traditional phage assays are where you, you, you know, you, you identify a plaque, which is almost like a, which is like a phage colony, if you will, just like an, an, a bacterial colony. Um, and then you, you measure the plaque and count the number of plaques, or you can do liquid culture assays where you take a single, you know, a, a phage, and then you apply that to a bacterial host. And then you see take, how long it takes for the bacterial host to lyse. You can do one or, you know, you can do a few or tens at most a uh, hundred or different uh, mutations to a phage and measure with these sort of traditional assays. Um, and so it's it's very low throughput. 
And, and so one way Oracle is different from traditional plaque assays is that um, we can measure hundreds of thousands of mutations in a single pot experiment, right? So in terms of the functional throughput of mutation function relationship in phages, this is three to four logs higher than traditional phage assays. And, and so, um, so that's one big advantage. Um, the, the second advantage, which is specific to the phage type is, is, um, is with, the, with lytic phages. And so there are, you know, broadly speaking, there are two types of phages. So the phages, which are called lysogenic phages, which integrate into the host genome. So lambda phage would be one such example. Um, and, and so they, then they are dormant on the phage gene, on the host genome. And, and, you know, when you stress the host genome, they pop out and then they escape, right? Now, these lysogenic phages are relatively easier to engineer because once they integrate onto the host genome, um, you can use all the traditional bacterial genome engineering tools, which are highly developed. Now, there's a second kind of phages, which are the lytic phages. Now, these lytic phages don't um, um, insert themselves into the host genome. They simply enter the host. They chew up the host, uh, hack its machinery, make copies of the, the, the phage, and then lyse the host and go on and infect new hosts. So, so in other words, they're sort of killing machines, if you will. Now, engineering the lytic phages is particularly hard because, well, you know, it's actively lysing the host as you're trying to engineer the phage. And so what Oracle does is how we can, we've, we've figured out a way in which where we can use uh, recombinases to, to make gene edits to the phage genome in very high throughput, almost as the phage is actively lysing the host. Now, this the, the, the reason engineering lytic phages is, is important is because the FDA mandates that for phage therapy, you can only use lytic phages. And, and the reason they mandate that is uh, if you use the lysogenic phage, when the lysogenic phage gets reactivated, it can grab pathogenic islands from the host genome along with it. And, but the lytic phages don't have such issues. And so the FDA mandates that you, can, you have to use lytic phages for therapy, and those turn out to be hard to engineer simply because they're actively licensed post. And so Oracle basically overcomes these problems. So do you see that maybe phages will somewhat in the near future uh, become more prevalent than, than antibiotics? Are you optimistic about their, their future? I, so my, my, my sense is there are sort of several scientific and technical challenges to overcome. And I think those can be overcome um, using, you know, there's just the confluence of synthetic biology methods uh, uh, and applying them on, on, on phage uh, systems, I think we'll be able to overcome uh, many of the challenges. And so this has to do with the efficacy of phages, the specificity. I, th I think these technical challenges will be overcome um, um, in, in, in a few years, hopefully. But I think the, 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 the bigger challenge uh, is, is almost a business model question with phage therapy, right? And this is true of not just phage therapy, but infectious disease in general, right? Because um, it's, there is, there is no viable business model with, or maybe there is one, I don't know, but, but the large companies are not invested in infectious disease um, because it's a cure, so to speak. Um, and, and so I think to me, that is the bigger problem as in, even if you had the most awesome uh, um, phage therapeutic platform, um, is, there a, is there a commercial path forward for that? I think that's a bigger question in my mind. So is it, is it much more costly than traditional antibiotics? No, it's not the cost factor. It's, it's you know, infections are not chronic illnesses, right? Uh, so it's, it's an actual treatment. So if you, if, you, if you have a bacterial infection, if you take an antibiotic, well, you know, it'll, the bacteria is dead and so you're cured, right? And so the, the, for, for, for large companies to, to, to invest in, in uh, infectious disease, 
it, it you're not going back for for the drug, right? Because it's 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 once and done. Um, and I think so. That's the problem. It's like it's it's the same problem with uh, I I think uh, malaria. It's it's sort of an infectious disease, and so that's why we nobody cares about it, right? But chronic diseases, you know, there is a there is a business model for that, you know, diabetes or or, or maybe even cancer. Um, but for infectious disease, the, it's it's not totally obvious to me um, if there is a commercial path forward. Now, there's there's a lot of government investment in in treatment of infectious disease, and I think that might be a game changer. Um, so BARDA is an agency that's investing heavily in infectious disease, um, and and so that might be the way forward. So, you know, just to sort of sum that up, I, I think the technical challenges are solvable, um, I, and if there is a viable commercial path forward. I think, you know, phage technology could be out there in, in even in even this decade. Awesome. So also I need to ask this, um, some of your bacteria phages are in the International Space Station right now. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, they actually came back. So we oh, sent them, okay, cool. yeah, they, did. They, they came back. Uh, we, we, so this is an interesting study that uh, was, was not something that we set out to do, uh, but, but the opportunity came our way um, uh, and, and, and they, and, and we, got the, we got a chance to send samples up to ISS, which is the International Space Station. And so we were, so the question that we posed was, is microgravity, does microgravity and, and radiation affect phage bacterial interactions in space differently um, uh, than under you know, terrestrial conditions? And so I guess the, the, the big sci-fi question for us was, you know, as we're thinking about humans colonizing other planetary bodies, you know, how would the microbiome function under those conditions, right? And if you if you think about sort of the 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 physics of this, it's you know the phages and the bacteria. There is this this constant mixing between them that happens, right? And so that's how uh, nutrients are exchanged. That's how um, that's the, that's how our microbiome churns, if you will. Um, and and we, we hypothesize that this this the, the mixing property of of uh, phages and bacteria will be different in, 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 in ISS because simply because the gravitational conditions are different. Um, and, and so we got a small box into which we could, we could send samples. It was literally about this size. And so we fit in about 25, 30 different samples, a few different uh, you know, time points, a few different concentrations and all that. And so we, we're, we're still analyzing the data, but it looks like there are clear differences uh, um, under uh, between ISS conditions and terrestrial conditions. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to write that up in, um, in the next few months. Awesome, look forward to reading that. Um, so I also wanted to switch gears a bit, um, kind of going into your background again. So you've worked in both David Baker's lab and George Church's lab. Uh, you know, you're probably one of the few people who have actually had both those people as your mentors. Um, how has working in both those labs um, kind of shaped how you think about problems? Um, it's 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 been a it's been a phenomenal life changing experience working in uh, both uh, David Baker's lab and George Church's lab. Um, I, I'd say the the one takeaway um, from from those experiences has been to is to think big, and and uh, both David and George um, they tackle big problems, um, they come up with really innovative solutions, um, and so I I'd like to think that some of that influence has rubbed off on me. Um, and, and so and the way it's influenced my thinking is uh, I ask, you know, what, what are the big questions out there um, and how can we come up with uh, uh, a novel and innovative angle to, to address that question? And again, th those are huge labs. And so, 
in, in, in some ways, it's, I've, I've benefited a lot from uh, my, my colleagues um, who are, who've been very creative and, um, and, uh, and ambitious people. And I've learned a lot from them, both in David's lab and in George's lab. Um, so I, it's, it's been the best experience of my life. Nice. So um, also in terms of lab sizes, so, you know, now you're running a lab that's relatively large, but still smaller than David Baker's and George Church's lab. Um, what do you see the trade-offs of um, big labs for small labs? I thought you may have some interesting um, insights on that. You know, I, I, I think, you know, as you rightly pointed out, I mean, there are trade-offs. I mean, my, I am much more accessible to my lab people. I, um, uh, I, I walk up and down my lab multiple times a day. Um, and uh, my schedule is not nearly as booked as David's or George's schedule might be. So I think accessibility is is a uh, uh, is, um, is is a key difference. Um, but again, I you know I, I love the big labs too, and you know because again my 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 peer group was 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 amazing, and I've, I I'd say I learned. Uh, more from them than I did from George or David. And so that's a benefit. I mean, and that's because they, you know, David and George had created those environments to, uh, to, 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 and they're magnets for amazing people to join. And, and I, I think I've, I've benefited from that. Um, and so I would, I would put that as a major advantage of, of, of large, I mean, resources, of course, I mean, larger labs have bigger resources, but I, I, I to me, that's not the, the bigger advantage. I think it's, it's the peer group that works with you uh, uh, in these larger labs. That's, that's a huge benefit. And, and you sort of carry that forward through your entire career, right? Because if I have any you know, scientific question or, or, or um, career guidance or whatnot, I have like 10 people who are professors in, in many, you know, different institutions that I can, they're just one email away. Um, so that's a huge benefit. And I think the small labs, I, I'd say um, it's, there is, there's, um, there's always a challenge in building things uh, from, you know, when I walked into my lab, it was just me and was a technician that joined and now we have 12, 13 people. And, and so I think there is, there is, um, there's excitement and a sense of accomplishment in, in, in building something up from scratch. Um, and, and I would, I'd say, you know, the, some of the people who joined my lab, uh, when I started my lab, um, they've, they've played a huge part in shaping the lab. And so, um, and, and, and they can rightfully feel very proud of that. Um, and, um, which I'd say I didn't have that influence in George or David's lab because they were highly established labs. So it's, you know, I think there are pluses and minuses. So last question for you. Um, I wanted to ask what makes a good synthetic biologist? Do you think just a, any, any good biologist should make a good synthetic biologist or is biological intuition just a part of the picture? Oh, I, I you know, I think really anybody can be a good synthetic biologist. Uh, I, my, my training was my undergraduate and master's degree were in chemical engineering. So I, I had no idea what biology was about uh, before I started grad school. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I, so I'd say really anyone can be a good synthetic biologist, but I, you know, maybe one, one attribute that uh, would benefit uh, is, is to sort of have a keen eye on how nature does things. Um, and because synthetic biology is, is for the most part, um, looking for quirks in nature and asking how we can exploit that to, to our end, right? So looking for, you know, an example would be, is there an enzyme that can, that has super high turnover? And so can we use, you know, what can we learn from what that enzyme does and, and use that for an enzyme that we care about? Or is there, 
some natural biomaterial that has interesting uh, physical chemical properties and can we engineer that into some other system that we care about? And so I'd say a, a, a useful trait would be to, to, to keep an eye out for these quirky things that nature does. Um, and and if, you, if you can identify those, then really question is, then can we put it together and make it do something else? Awesome. Okay, Vatsum, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was uh, was fun chatting with you.